Welcome to the 11th webinar in the NJHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care. My name is Ebtissam Ahmad. I'm an Associate Clinical Professor at St. John's University College of Pharmacy, and I'm the Director of the Pharmacy Internship at MGHS Institute for Innovation and Palliative Care. I'm honored to be here today to talk to you about such a challenging topic that faces many of our patients and our caregivers. Today we're going to be discussing opioid side effects and as far as uh, therapy, th opiate therapy in the medically ill patients as far as side effects. We're going to learn about some of the most common side effects and some of the most uncommon side effects. We're going to also be learning about different strategies and how to manage these side effects so patients could have a better quality of life and they could achieve optimum pain management. And we're also going to learn about uh, different techniques and counseling for the caregivers, for the social workers, for the pharmacists, for the physicians, and for all healthcare professionals involved in the patient care. I have nothing to disclose. Opioid prescription medications are very useful medications for the treatment of pain, especially in the palliative care populations. However, oftentimes when we think about barriers for effective pain management beyond the educations and beyond teaching about the side effects and whatnot, even if patients, for everybody listening today, whether you are a pharmacist or a physician or a nurse, a practitioner, or even a patient yourself, even if patients have medications and access to them, one of the most common reasons people don't like to take their drugs is their apprehension about the side effects, their fear about the side effects and what to do about it. Side effects, it's very diverse when it comes to the opioids. It's across patients. It happens in the elderly. It happens in young people. It happens in middle-aged people. It, it, it varies. It, it, it varies in also as far as the drugs. Some drugs are known to cause more side effects versus others. So we know from the literature, we know from clinical practice, for example, morphine causes more nausea and vomiting compared to the other opioids. We know that morphine as well can cause a lot of itchiness compared to oxycodone, compared to fentanyl or any other opioids. And also one important thing about the side effects that it varies also across times. Some of these side effects, as we'll learn today, happen as soon as you initiate therapy, and then later on during therapy or could be, it will never go away. Even if you go up on the dose or you go low on the dose, it will just be there for as long as patients are using opioids. So our goal is to really to try to minimize the opioids uh, this is really the fundamental thing that we want to do. We want to make sure that we empower our patients and the caregiver that patients get access to these drugs, but on the same time, they are experiencing no side effects or they are experiencing side effects or are able to manage for them. Here are some of the most common side effects that we see um, that include constipation, uh, which I'm sure we all hear about in clinical practice. Almost all our patients who are taking opioids complain of constipation is the most common symptoms that we hear about. Also nausea is the second most common one, somnolence and mental clowning. And other concerns or other side effects that we could see and we'll discuss today, respiratory depression or endocrine side effects or QT prolongation specifically with methadone. Uh, QT also induced hyperalgesia, which is a new phenomenon that now we're reading about and we're hearing about more in the literature and urinary retention. In general, it takes a higher dose of the opioids to get to these other concerns or the other side effects versus the common one that could happen when you initiate therapy. So the longer you are on the opioids, the longer the duration, the higher the dose, you're going to be concerned more about the other side effects from the opioids and not as much as the common ones. 
Constipation is the most common side effects reported with opioids. About 50% of palliative care patients with cancer in the United States reporting experiencing constipation secondary to the opioids. And as you can see here, the estimate also exists in lung cancer pain population. Opioid-induced constipation causes a lot of distress. Uh, think, if you, think about your patient. Not only the stress is for the patient, but also for the caregivers uh, in the sense that they're seeing their loved one um, not taking their pain medications because of the consequences of the opioids. They're seeing their loved one agony in pain. They're seeing their loved one uncomfortable and whatnot. And even the patient themselves, it takes a lot of toll on the patient, a lot of stress for the patient, a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. It also affects the increased total cost of care, um, leading oftentimes constipation that is unmanaged results in patients not taking their drugs. I can't tell you from my own practice how many patients we have seen who would refuse to take their opiates for the management of their pain rather than because they get very worried about the constipation. They, they complain about it too much, nothing has worked for them, nothing seemed to be helping them, and they would rather not take their pain medicine and deal with and to avoid the constipation as much as they can. So constipation in general has a very negative impact about the health-related quality of life for the patients and the caregiver. One important problem uh, that we often healthcare professionals, whether you're a, list, um, you're a nurse listening to me today, or a pharmacist, or a physician, even a social worker, that how do we define constipation? What does it even mean for the patient constipation? So a part of dealing with constipation that results from the opiates require a lot of assessment in the sense that we need to get a better history about what is normal for the patient. So we need to get ask the patients about what is your normal bowel movement before initiating the opioids, how often do you go, um, do you have any problem going in the past, what, what, if, you're any, if you're in any other drugs that may also cause constipation. And then even while the patient are on opioids is to make sure that we reassessing if there is a change in bowel movements, if there's things change in them, if they're having problems going, if they're having straining problems, and so on. That will really kind of help us determine if we have a baseline to follow up and to always go back and compare what happened with the addition of the opioids. Other differential diagnosis for constipations, besides being on the opioids, there are other things that could also cause constipations, and it's very important to screen for so because you want to make sure that you try and to eliminate any aggravating factors that could worsen the constipations. So a lot of style factors. So if you have a patient that has um, very minimum activities, they are not ambulatory, they are not going out, getting out of bed, they are not functioning the, um, you know, the way they normally used to, that may could result also in constipation. Stress, whether it's a physical or emotional stress, also induces dismotility. Obstruction, so think of a patient that has any type of carcinomatosis, so patients who have any type of an endocrine tumor, or patients who have pancreatic cancer, or patients who have gastric cancer, that could also result in constipations. Or patients who had surgery, and they developed post-surgery, post-operative ileus, or patients who have feeding tube. Electrolyte imbalance also could result in constipation, so if you have patients who have low magnesium, or you have patients who have hypercalcemia, that could also result in constipations and drugs, prescription drugs, other than the opioids. Other prescription drugs, not everything is the opioids to blame. Other drugs can also cause constipation. So for example, if you have a patient that has hypertension, but on the same time they have, um, they have um, a, a, a pain that requires them to take opioids. Some of the hypertensive medication, like calcium channel blocker, like drugs like verapamil or amlodipine, 
could cause constipations. If you have patients who are taking anticholinergic drugs, so drugs like scopolamine could result also in constipations. Some of the neuro, some of the chemotherapy that are neurotoxic, so drugs like vinca alkaloids like vincristine or vinblastine are known to cause constipation. Drugs like also antidepressants or some of the antihistamine therapy could also cause constipation. And it could be patient-related influence as well. It could be that the patient has many GI disease or they have comorbidities or someone has irritable bowel syndrome of some sort of age is definitely a risk factor as well. We know that constipation is more common in elderly versus young people. Also, it has to do with hydration, nutrition status. So if you have a patient that's not maintaining adequate nutrition or maintaining adequate hydration, they may be at a higher risk of developing constipations as well. So the bottom line of this slide is to really make sure that you look at the differential diagnosis for constipation beside the opiates, because you want to eliminate as many triggering factors if you can, as much as you can. That's what you really should aim for. And if you want to see if any of these triggering factors also could be modified in order to make sure that the constipation is not as aggravating. When you have a patient that has constipated, what you want to do is you want to do a good interview, you want to examine the patients, you want to see if there's any mechanical reason behind the constipation. You want to ask them about um, their bowel movements again. When was the last time they had a bowel movement about passing the stool? Is it dry? Is it hard? Are they straining any kind of associated um, symptoms with it? But some of the other silent symptoms that you will see that are highly common, especially if the constipated is very worse, you'll see patients complaining of abdominal pain. If it's been more than five or three to five days, they haven't had a bowel movement, some of them might complain of nausea or vomiting. You might also see some patients complain of bloating, and uh, some patients might have an overflow or diarrhea, especially around the impaction. And you might see some urinary retentions of incontinence, or you might see impaired gastrointestinal absorptions, which represents a major challenge in my patients taking other drugs that relies mainly on the gastrointestinal for absorption. So what exactly happened when you're given opioids in constipation? We all know uh, the basic pharmacology that opioids bind to the neuroceptors in the central nervous system, but on the same time they bind to the neuroceptors in the gastrointestinal tract. This is a true mechanism. As a result of binding to the opioid in the receptor in the GI tract, the neuroreceptors, we get to see a decrease in the GI motility, decrease in the secretion and the blood flow and the um, absorption as well. We see more colonic transit is delayed, the sphincter tone increases, and as a result, you see the defecation is inhibited. So things don't move south. Things are all impacted, things are all concrete and just sitting there. They are not moving south and they are not getting eliminated out of uh, the patient's system. So this is really a true mechanism. And if you think about it, you want as much as you can to do prophylaxis for your patients. You want to prevent this from happening. This is really the key, one of the key treatment options for these patients. Rather than waiting for the constipations to come in, is to try to do aggressive prophylaxis treatment as soon as you can. The same hand that's writing opioids should be the same hand writing for prophylaxis therapy for opioid-induced constipation. The return of pain, um, this was some data that was published in 2008. Um, they showed that the consequences of being constipated. You have patients who are experiencing pain, and as a result, they get palliative care patients. They get placed on opioid therapy for the management of their pain. 
which they get pain relief, which is a good thing. You want your patients, their pain to get control. But as a result of pain relief, because of the opioids and improper prophylaxis for constipation, patients become constipated. They develop opioid-induced constipations. They start to have all these symptoms that we discussed, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, you know, retention, and so on. And as a result, because they don't know what to do or they were not educated enough about what to do in the case they develop the constipations or about the drugs, they stop their opioid prescription drugs. And as a result, you see the pain is coming back. So it's really a cycle. It keeps going back and back. So they're chasing the pain, then they're chasing the constipation, then they're chasing the pain again. So this slide really focuses a lot on the concept of educating patients and caregivers about what to do for the constipations and making sure that all healthcare professionals are doing prophylaxis and doing a lot of education with the patients and the caregivers. Our treatment goal for opioid-induced constipation, what we really aim for, we want to um, try to get more comfortable bowel movement every day or every other day without distress for the patients. Very important that we want to make sure that they're having a bowel movement that's not causing them to be in pain, that's not causing them to be in stress of any sort. So we do use a combination laxatives. In general, we need a stimulant, which is very important. You want to make, make sure that you have something on board that stimulates the gut motility, so it's kind of pushing it out. And on the same time, we add a stool softener um, to make it to make the stool softener, and it's, the patients have less um, symptoms of like straining or so on. So this is a combination therapy that's recommended, and the idea is to really make sure at the end that we're maintaining or improving the quality of life. As far as which laxatives do we use, uh, we have very few data to guide us in practice. Oftentimes, it's a clinical judgment. Oftentimes, um, it depends really on the availability or where you practice or, or your institutions or your formerly. It also depends on the experience. So we want to ask the patients about what have you tried in the past? What worked for you? What side effects did you develop with that specific regimen? So I want to make sure I avoid that specific regimen because I don't want no new symptoms to deal with. It also has to do with costs. Some of these drugs, and we will discuss today, could only be available in a brand name, and it could be expensive. It could be the patient's insurance doesn't cover. So we want to think, take that into consideration also when we decide onto therapy. Uh, there is no dose finding. There is no data that exists as far as dose finding or rotations or combination. Oftentimes, just like any other medicine, we start slow and you titrate up. Uh, but the concept is every time you're going to go up on the opioids, you have to think about aggressively more for your constipation. So just because my patient has been on a dose, for example, five milligrams of morphine twice a day for the last two months, and then all of a sudden their pain is escalating and I'm going to go up on the dose, I should consider, highly consider going up on the dose also of the prophylaxis cerebral constipation because they go hand to hand. The higher the dose of the opiates, the more constipation the effect becomes. This is a table uh, showing the different types of uh, opioids that we have for induced constipations. We have different drugs currently that could be used. We have the bulk laxative forms, so drugs like um, methyl cellulose or psyllium husk. Um, these drugs in general, we try to avoid them in patients who are non-ambulatory or patients who are not maintaining uh, adequate hydration. So if you have a patient that's bed-bound, the patient's not moving around, the patient's not getting out of bed, and they're unable to drink eight ounces of water per day, we try as much as we can to avoid bulk laxatives. 
because all what it's going to do is just going to make concrete, but it's not going to necessarily do the push, which we want something to stimulate peristalsis. Another uh, class of medication is osmotic laxatives. An example would be sorbitol or lactidose or polyethylene glycol. These are often recommended into therapy as a second line after you try the stimulants and docusate. Um, keep in mind that they are associated with electrolyte imbalance, increased gas, they also cause nausea, and sometimes they cause dehydration. So you have to think about who is really the patient that will benefit from these. And once again, like as I mentioned, we use them oftentimes as a secondary option after we try a stimulant in a combination with a stool softener. Third class is a stool softener. An example would be docusate. Um, um, it decreases the surface tensions to lubricate. It makes it easy for the stool to come out. Um, like I always tell my pharmacy students when I teach, I always even tell residents that I work with, think of docusate or think of stool softener that will make the stool something, something mushy so it's easy for it to come out. Uh, side effects that can sometimes require adequate intake as well. And um, it's, it's not really beneficial in patients who have compromised bowel motility. Stimulants are really our mainstay treatment for the treatment of opioid-induced constipations. We have Senna, we have Vesicodo. Um, also, Vesicodo comes in a suppository form. And this is really the main effective treatment that we want. We want something to stimulate peristalsis, we want something to stimulate the gut motility, and so on. And then the last class of medications that we have is the new introduction of the peripheral opioid antagonist, a methylmaltrexone that was introduced to the market in 2008. It's an opioid antagonist that only binds to the GI opioid mu receptors in the GI tract. It does not cross the blood-brain barrier. It does not reverse the opioids. Oftentimes, there's this misconception that if you're going to give methylmaltrexone, you're going to put my patient in withdrawal. My patient is going to be in more pain. That doesn't happen because the drug itself does not work this way. It only binds to the neuroreceptors in the gut. Um, it only blocks them, and as a result, you get to see a bowel movement. Uh, Methylnatrexone, the subcutaneous injection, it's approved for opioid-induced constipation for patients who are refractory. So if you have patients who have tried asthmatic laxative, patients who tried stool softeners, they tried stimulants, and nothing seems to be working for them, and their constipation is only getting aggravating and getting worse, then you should consider methylnaltrexone. One important thing before prescribing methylnaltrexone, you have to think about that you have to, if you suspect that your patient might be um, obstructed, that might be a contraindication. You do not want to give methylnaltrexone to someone who has an obstruction. That's actually contraindicated because there are cases where it caused um, gastrointestinal perforation. Some of the reported side effects with preferred opiate antagonists includes abdominal pain, nausea, and dizziness. And normally, within four hours after the injection, the subcutaneous injection, you do see a bowel movement. So this was uh, a guideline that was published by Dr. Lurkin. It was based on an expert opinion by a group of experts in the palliative care field who thought about what do we do for the treatment, and they looked at all the evidence, and they combined this chart uh, for us to kind of guide us into therapy and clinical practice what we should do. So if you have a patient that comes in with constipations, you want to make sure that you work them up first. You want to rule out obstructions. You want to treat um, uh, any causes that may be caught, eliminate or treat any causes that may be aggravating the constipation. And then uh, what they recommend, the recommended first-line treatment is to try with an oral laxative or a combination of a stimulant. Uh, so again, you want to add on a Senna or a Bisacoro and then add a stool softener, so something like docusate, or you can add an asthmatic laxative like lactulose. 
if the patient, their symptoms got improved, then you continue with that specific regimen. But if that specific patient, they did not respond to the initial first-line treatment, then you have to think about either using a second line would be to use a rectal suppository or an enema, or to consider the use of peripheral specific antagonists like methylnaltrexone for as long as the patient doesn't have obstruction. And if that works, is to continue the regimen. In the third line treatment, if you have a patient that did not respond to the rectal suppositories or the enema, you did not rechallenge the patient, you didn't think about using methylnaltrexone, then you should really at this point either consider a manual evacuation or consider using a peripheral opioid antagonist such as methylnaltrexone. What you could also do for the treatment of management of constipations in, um, result, as a result of an opioid is you can do opioid rotation. So we know from the literature and from clinical practice that morphine and codeine are considered to be the most constipated opioids compared to the rest, even hydrocodone as well. Uh, there are data showing that if you switch patients from morphine or oxycodone to fentanyl patch, if it's indicated for them, they do much better. Uh, fentanyl transdermal patch has less GI toxicities compared to the rest of the opioids. So this is something also you should consider if, if you have a patient that's uh, having very significant uh, side effects with the opioids, such as morphine, for example, they are unable to tolerate the constipations and they are not getting, they're having some optimum pain relief due to the fact that they're stopping to take their medicine, maybe we should really think outside the box and think about, okay, switching them to something else that has less GI side effects, works better for the constipations, and so on. Now let's shift it off to the other side effects that we see with opioids, and that includes um, nausea. As I mentioned, constipation is very common, and we know the most about it. Uh, but we also know that constipation could result also in causing a lot of nausea. But there are some also presumed mechanism of how opioids can, can uh, result in uh, nausea. Um, opioids can stimulate direct uh, stimulation of the chemo trigger zone. They also result, they also cause uh, synthesizations of the vestibular system. They also cause uh, gastroparesis and slow peristalsis as well. So again, you can see patients complaining of nausea as a result of that. Uh, nausea in general, the risk factors, it's more common. We see from the literature and from even clinical practice, it's more common in female versus male. It's less common in Caucasian versus African descent. Um, one thing to keep in mind with nausea, oftentimes it's transit in the sense that when you initiate opioids, if my patient right now or even in the next two to three days is complaining of nausea, patients develop tolerance. So within three to seven days, you would expect the nausea to go away. But if you have patients where the nausea persists and it continues to go beyond the seven-day duration, these are the patients that you have to think about, what am I going to do? Am I going to consider opioid rotation to something else or am I going to treat them on an anti-emetic or what exactly am I going to do for management of these nausea that I'm having that goes beyond the three to seven days duration. So the routine approach is to think about any reverse, again, to think about if anything on board that's causing this, any contributing factor. So some, maybe my patient have hyponatremia, maybe my patients have hypokalemia, maybe my patient taking other chemotherapy that might be causing them to be nauseated or so on. So think about reversal of any contributing factors. Um, also, if it's a chemo triggers receptor zone, like as I mentioned, opioid activates that. Then we are going to think about using antipsychotic drugs, 
like dopamine blocking antiemetics, and we have multiple drugs like prochlorperazine, metoclopramide, or haloperidol, or additional drugs based on the presumed mechanism. So if you have a patient that tells you I'm feeling nauseated because I'm having like heartburn or anything that has to do with the reflux symptoms, then you can consider using a proton pump inhibitor. If you have patients who tell you when I take my, my opioids and I feel my head is spinning, you know, I feel like I'm dizzy, maybe these patients you have to think about using antihistamine for them. If you have patients who have gastroparesis um, all the time, anytime they eat or whatnot, maybe you should consider using uh, metoclopramide for these patients. Uh, there is no proven uh, clinical benefit on any of these drugs as far as which one do we use. Uh, do we go first to the dopamine blocking agent? Do we go first to the PPI? Do we go first to the antihistamines? You, it, uh, the way it's done in clinical practice, you look at your patient's specific characteristics. You look at what symptoms they have. You talk to the caregivers who are taking to the patients. This is really where a social worker can come in because you can talk to the family. You can ask the family about what symptoms is the patient experiencing. And then we can take it from there. But once again, um, nausea, oftentimes it goes beyond three to seven days. Patient develop tolerance. If it goes beyond seven days, this is when you really think about what am I going to do. So for example, if I have a patient that's taking morphine, it's been more than seven days, a patient is having significant nausea to the fact that they cannot take the morphine, these are the patients that I want to consider opioid rotations. I want to switch them to something else. But if I have a patient that has nausea after seven days, but on the same time they say, the drug is working, doc, it's helping me with my pain. It is really working for me. These are the patients that I'm going to consider using an anti-emetic agent for the management of their nausea. Um, Opioid-induced neuropsychological effects is also another side effects that we could see with opioids. It could present as somnolence or sedation. It can present as cognitive impairment. It could present as mood changes. Some patients might complain of some hallucinations or change in perceptions, or it could be any combination of those. They could have cognitive impairment. They could have somnolence. They could have mood changes as well. Um, Opioid-induced neuropsychological effects has a lot of also characteristics and very important to pay attention to because it's highly variable within and across individuals. It could also be a result of organ function in the sense that if you have a patient that, an elderly patient that has, um, oral, uh, that has renal dysfunction and you're giving them morphine. Morphine is a drug that gets metabolized to an active metabolite, M6G and M3G. These metabolites accumulate in renal failure patients, and as a result, these patients might have hallucinations, they might have confusions, they might be, have sedations, and so on. So this is something also to pay attention to because sometimes it could be a drug that is causing, or it could be a metabolite, or it could be the age, or it could be the organ function of the patient itself. It varies across individuals, and it's oftentimes it's transitory. It's just like nausea or vomiting. It goes away within three to seven days. But for sure enough, some patients may require additional therapy to help them cope with these unwanted side effects if it goes beyond the three to seven days. So an initial step to uh, manage the neuropsychological effects from the opiates is to think about, again, any reverse of contributing factors. So you want to eliminate, and this is really a great opportunity for pharmacists listening today, to screen patients' profile, or even physicians, or even nurses. When you have a patient coming in, you want to look at their profile. You want to see if they're taking any other drugs that could potentially be causing or aggravating their symptoms. 
So if they're taking any CNS depressants or drugs like atypical antipsychotics or drugs like antidepressants or benzodiazepines that could also be causing an additional neuropsychological side effects. You want to identify minimum effective dose, so maybe if we lower the dose of the opioids if possible without losing pain relief, that's an option for us to do for these patients. Or sometimes even considering change in the pattern. I've had patients who were taking long-acting opioids and sometimes they complain, Doc, in the morning dose, it makes me sleepy. I can't go to work. I keep sleeping. I keep like, you know, taking naps at the job. What you think and what we have done for these patients is to move. During the day, we'll give them only like immediate release drugs so they're not accumulating. And at the bedtime dose, when they are at home, when they're with their family, when they're loved ones, when they're in their own bed and so on, maybe we'll give them most of the dose at night time to make sure that we're managing the side effects that we're seeing. Other approaches is to consider also opioid rotations. Again, switch. Um, so some drugs, so like I mentioned, the example of the elderly person with renal dysfunctions and morphine, maybe not a good idea to give them morphine because they're going to accumulate. They're going to have um, you know, the M6G and the M3G, and as a result, they're going to be confused. They're going to be sedated. They're going to be more sleepy. Maybe I'll consider switching them to hydromorphone. Just because it happened with one drugs doesn't mean it's going to happen with the other one because it has to do with the pharmacology of the drugs. We know that methadone and fentanyl has no active metabolite. They might be a better option for someone who has neuropsychological effects because we try to avoid the active metabolite as much as we can. And the approach also, one of the approaches for the management of neuropsychological effects is to think about dr drugs that we can use for the treatment of somnolence or mental clouding in addition to the opioids for these patient populations. So we can use psychostimulant therapy. Um, so we currently have three drugs that has been used. Uh, some of them are, are early on phases or some of them are used um, off-label. Methylphenidate is a cyclostimulant drugs. There are a lot of data supporting the use of methylphenidate even at a relatively low dose, like 5 to 10 milligrams dose every day, only in the morning and sometimes even in the early afternoon. Um, you see an improvement in sedation compared to placebo in these patient populations. Uh, modafinil is another drug that could be used, but with modafinil is a little bit tricky because you have to be on it for a longer period of time. Like these patients have to take it for like four to four to six weeks in order for them to see the sedation go away. Sometimes also it has more side effects, it causes hallucinations. So it wouldn't I wouldn't go for it as a first-line therapy. In clinical practice, I would go first to methylphenidate. It's short-acting. I'm not talking here about the long-acting drugs. I'm talking mainly about the short-acting methylphenidate. I would go to them if I have a patient that's having sedation that is not getting better. Um, they do not, cannot, they cannot go on without the opioids because they want it for the treatment of their pain. It's helping their pain. It's helping their function. It's helping their quality of life. I will consider a low dose of methylphenidate. An emergent concept is also the use of acylcholinesterase inhibitor for the management of sedation. There was a small open-label trial of uh, 5 milligram for one week that results in an improvement of sedation and fatigue, specifically in cancer patients. Uh, but again, this was, this was a very small trial, and it's very early on. Maybe in the future we'll see more data with denazepam. Opioid-induced neuroendocrine changes is another side effect that could happen. There's a true mechanism why this happened. Uh, opioids certainly do um, affect the hypothalamus. They inhibit the gonadotropin-releasing hormone. As a result, you see a decrease in the luteinizing hormone, the follicle-stimulating hormone which inhibits the production of testosterone and estrogen. 
opioids also increase um, as a result of this whole feedback and bad feedback mechanism. You see a stimulate and prolactin release, so you get patients have more hypo hyperprolactinemia. Uh, you see also a decrease in testosterone and um, production by the testes. A general recommendations, um, this is a question that oftentimes physicians are asking or pain practitioners or anybody working in pain management and palliative care patients, what should we do and when should we be concerned about this? So the general recommendations is this side effects or you should be more concerned about it for patients who require opioid therapy for longer times. So anybody that goes beyond three months or longer, uh, something to think about as far as the opioid-induced endocrine toxicities. Or for any patients who are taking more than 100 milligrams morphine equivalent per day. Or for patients who are receiving intrathecal opioids. Uh, something to think about, these are the patient populations that you have to think about, okay, um, maybe I should screen for it and maybe I should consider the symptoms, maybe I should ask or reassess. The symptoms that you want to assess, you're going to ask patients about um, their sexual activity, so if they have reduced libido, especially for men if they have like erectile dysfunctions. But oftentimes, beside the decreased libido and the erectile dysfunctions, other symptoms that you want to ask about is the fatigue, is the depression, is the anemia, which could also result in anemia and whatnot. Um, you want to ask about like hot flashes or night sweat, sweats of some sort. And um, these are some of the labs that you can screen for to make sure that you are doing, you're considering like assessing for this. As far as recommendations or what should we do in this case that we have opioid-induced neuroendocrine, uh, there are currently, uh, based on the limited existing data, patients should be asked about the relevant symptoms. So we, again, once we, again, we need to ask patients about, um, it depends where they are as far as their goals of therapy, and it depends where they are as far as where they are in the course of their treatment. But we want to make sure that if you have a patient that's coming in, complaining to you of significant fatigue, significant mood disorder, depression, feeling sad all the time, and it could not be explained by anything else, this is something to think about if they are on opioids therapy for long-term time, they've been on it for more than three months, or they're taking the equivalency of morphine more than 100 milligrams per day. Patients, again, that the recommendation emphasized that patient long-term therapy should be considered also for bone density, depending on where you are as far as goals of care, screening the patients for osteoporosis, depending where they are, again, once in their course of treatment and so on. And you could consider uh, a treatment in patients who, uh, whether it's a man or a woman, with um, um, uh, androgen replacement therapy for the treatment of opioid-induced neuroendocrine changes. Respiratory depression, it's uh, very uncommon to see if you are dosing the drugs properly, but sometimes even if you're doing proper dosing for your patients, but your patients are at higher risk, you could see respiratory depressions. So who is at a high risk for populations? If you have patients that are taking uh, concurrent CNS depressants, if I have a patient that's taking uh, benzodiazepines or they're taking atypical antipsychotics, but on the same time they're going to be placed on an opiate, that might be an additive risk. Patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or patients who are obese or patients who have recent abdominal surgeries, it's definitely people who are also at risk are the neonatal or the elderly or patients who are opiate naive. As far as what to do for respiratory depressions, it's really you want to try to avoid it as much as you can. And this is a basic concept of the treatment of pain management. Start low, 
and go slow, right? You tie treating up, you're not putting snowing, the patient has a lot of like drugs, you're making sure that you're using the opioid conversion table. If you're converting, you make sure that you're counting for cross tolerance. So for example, if you have a patient that has been on morphine for quite a long period of time, and then now I want to switch them to methadone, make sure I'm using the appropriate conversion, make sure I'm counting for cross tolerance, make sure I'm assessing organ functions, make sure I'm asking the patients if they tried the drug in the past or not. And as far as pharmacological option for these patients, what you can do if they develop uh, opioid in this is to use naloxone for them to reverse the opioids. Uh, Opioid-induced paritis, so itching, um, is another side effect that uh, ranges from 2 to 10% of all patients receive, uh, receiving opioids. There are more incidents in the literature, especially for patients who are getting naroxyl administrations of opioids, the patients who are getting intrathecal opioids or patients who are getting epidural opioids. Uh, the mechanism is not clearly understood. There are some thoughts that it has to do with the histamine release or the activation of the itch center in the central nervous system. But we do know that certain drugs, certain opioids, no, cause more histamine to be released from the mast cells versus others. So for example, morphine. Morphine, a lot of patients, and I'm sure for those of you listening, I've had patients who tell you, morphine makes me itch, you know, it makes me scratch dark, it makes me like, you know, uncomfortable and so on. This is a drug property rather than a class property. So with that being said, meaning um, oftentimes I can tell you from my own experiences, I would go to a patient's room and I would ask, oh, Ms. X, are you allergic to any opiates? Yeah, I'm allergic to morphine. But then we fail to ask what happened with morphine in the sense, what happened? And when you ask the patient, they tell you, oh, it made me itch. The itching that you see from morphine is not an allergic reaction. The itching that you see from the opioid is not an allergic reaction. It's not an IgE-mediated immune uh, allergic reaction. Oftentimes, it has to do with the histamine release. So this is really a side effect rather than an allergic reaction. Very important for you to understand that because just cause you developed Itching with morphine doesn't mean I can't give you oxycodone. Yes, I can, because you are very less likely, or you may, or you may not, I don't really know, unless I try. With oxycodone, you may develop itching, or you may not develop itching. But if you have a patient that has a true allergic morphine, you know, in this case, you're going to avoid them and use a different class of medications. So you're going to use, for example, fentanyl or methadone or any other drugs. As far as management of the opiates-induced paritis, oftentimes it's transit in the sense it will also go away after a few days, but it go, if it goes beyond a week, if it goes beyond, again, seven days, this is when you should consider the use of antihistamine drugs, so drugs like um, hydroxyzine or the phenhydramine, like Benadryl. You should also consider using um, dopamine agonists, and there are new literature now suggesting the use of paroxetine and SSRIs um, and very relatively dose, low dose for the treatment of opiate-induced paritis as well. Opiate-induced urinary retention um, is the same kind of constrictions of the circulatory muscle as constipations. The exact true mechanism of why this happened, we are not exactly sure uh, how it happens. There have been opioids have been reported to be associated with decrease in sensation of the fullness or avoiding reflux. Um, it's mostly reported with methadone, meaning in the substance use populations. Um, patients who have been taking methadone in the substance use clinic, um, they are often reporting that this could happen. There's no time frame for it. It could happen from initiating therapy or it could happen later on. 
we escalated those higher or so on. Um, it also reported more commonly with neuroxial opioids versus opioids that are taken orally. Uh, it's mostly reported with patients that are getting epidural and intrathecal opioids. And uh, there are some data as far as reversing the opioids that will make the urinary tensions go away. Opiate-induced Q2 prolongation is uh, another problem that could happen with the opiates, in particular with methadone. There are very strong evidence that it's dose-dependent effect of methadone. Um, the Annals of Internal Medicine published guideline in 2009 talking about the risk of methadone that, and emphasizing that all healthcare professionals should be aware of that. They recommend that all healthcare professionals um, screen patients who are placing on methadone, asking your patients, do you have a risk of arrhythmia, do you have a risk of cardiac dysfunctions, do you have a risk of any kind of heart problems or heart disease in your family. Also, it really focuses a lot on asking the, asking the healthcare professionals to ask the family and ask the patient also about the drug history. You want to see the patients, what drugs are they taking to make sure that they are not in any other drugs that can prolong the QT as well. So drugs like antipsychotics, or drugs like some of the antifungal, or some of the antibiotics, or even on the certain a 5-HG3 antagonist could prolong the QT as well. You want to, the recommendation emphasized that you want to screen for drug interactions. So once again, if drugs that may inhibit or the methadone metabolism. So if you have a patient that has um, a fungal infection of some sort and they are on fluconazole and at the same time they are on methadone. Fluconazole may inhibit the me metabolism of methadone and as a result you have higher, higher methadone concentration in the blood and that puts the patient at higher risk. Also you want to obtain a baseline EKG. It's recommended now that for any patient who is going to be placed on methadone is to obtain a baseline EKG and to repeat it after 30 days and then to repeat it annually. And the recommendation says that if you have patients who come in with unexplained syncope, so if you have one of your patients coming in and telling you that I am having unexplained, like, you know, dizziness of some sort and unexplained syncope, these are the patients that you want to pay a close eye attention to them and monitor them. And you want to make sure that you disclose the risk to the patients, and not only to the patients, very important to the caregivers, because oftentimes they are the ones taking care of the patients and living with the patients, you know, they are on daily to daily. They are part of the family, so we have to make sure that we educate them as well as far as the risks. Um, methadone, QT prolongation. Most of the data came with patients who are taking more than 100 milligrams per day, but there are definitely cases where it happened even below that. Uh, it's very important to think about it. Very important to follow the guideline. Very important to uh, screen patients' profile for again for any drugs that may prolong the QT. Um, if my patients have hypokalemia of some sort, and make sure to address it. Opiate-induced hyperalgesia has been described in a number of clinical settings and also has been described in a lot of uh, animal studies. Uh, there's some interesting work done in opiate agonist uh, therapies for uh, addiction and also looking at the pain threshold. Um, Opiate-induced hyperalgesia results in an increase in sensitivity to a stimulus. Uh, so you have these patients that no matter what you go up on the dose, those escalation can lead to no change in alopecia, but oftentimes even the patient will tell you, my pain is getting worse. You keep going up on the opiates and as it's quite the opposite of what's happening. The pain is getting worse. It's associated, it's been associated from clinical practice mostly with long-term utilization of opiates, so patients are taking opiates for long-term use. 
and it has to do is thought one of the proposed mechanism that it has to do with the activation of the neuroexcitatory receptors, the NMDA and the MPA receptor. Treatment approach for opioid-induced hyperalgesia management. What you need to think about is opioid rotation in the sense that if um, my patient has been on like hydromorphone, for example, and they're in relatively high dose and they are not responding, it's quite the opposite. They're telling me they're causing them to be in more pain. It's to switch them to something else. Other pharmacological um, consideration that you can consider is an MDA receptor antagonist such as ketamine or clonidine or lidocaine, and the idea is to taper slowly the opioids down and to start these drugs to reverse some of the opioid tolerance. And um, surprisingly enough, this might take care of the opioid-induced hyperalgesia that you see. Um, I have done that quite a bit in my practice. Not We don't see it very often, but we have had patients who have opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and when we taper off the opioids, taper it down, and we start other adjuvant analgesic, we do see improvement in the opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So to conclude my presentations today, um, we, to, we want to make sure that we optimize the outcomes of opiate therapy. All clinicians, whether we are pharmacists or physicians or nurses or um, social workers and anybody, we make sure that we educate patients and the caregivers about anticipated side effects and educating them about what to do counseling the patients again and the caregivers, assess and reassess and reassess, because as we learned today, some of these side effects don't happen uh, right away. Some of them might happen right away, some might happen always, like constipation, there is no, it rarely goes away, so we need to make sure that we're addressing that throughout the spectrum, we're treating the patient with opioids, and to treat and side effects and address any sign of any, any toxicities that are arising. So just to wrap up the presentation, um, I have two um, I have two cases here that can kind of reinforces the idea of what we discussed today. So the first case, we have a 56-year-old man with a newly diagnosed prostate cancer who develops left leg pain and is found to have a proximal femur bone metastases. He has never used opioids in the past, and his oncologist told him to take some ibuprofen around the clock for the management of his pain. Uh, remains quite bothersome. He returns back to his oncologist, and the oncologist decides to put the patient on morphine 5 milligrams every four hours as needed for pain. Uh, the patient's pain is well controlled with that regimen, but he becomes 30, becomes very nauseous. He complains of nausea 30 to 6 minutes after each morphine dose. The patient is referred to the palliative care clinic, um, but the nausea persists after two weeks. Despite around the clock, he tried a number of drugs. Tried dopamine and antagonists such as metoclopramide, trilopaldol, even trilopaldol, HD3 antagonists such as ondosartan. The patient has regular bowel movement, so this was not constipation, nausea due to constipation. So what should we do really at this point? So this is a patient that is an opioid. The opioid is causing them to have nausea that goes beyond the two-week period, and what should we do? So what would you do in this case? Would you add around the clock prochloroperazine? Would you discontinue the morphine and manage the patient's pain with only ibuprofen? Would you arrange a trial of intrathecal opiates due to a dose-limiting nausea? Or would you switch the patient to another opiate using equi-allergesic dose? So let's go through these answers and discuss them. So option number A, add around the clock prochlorperazine. 
If we look in the case, the patient did not respond to metoclopramide, did not respond to haloperidol. At this point, it's very less likely that he will respond to another dopamine antagonist. So this isn't really the best intervention that we can do at this point. B, should we discontinue the morphine and manage the patients only with ibuprofen alone? When this patient's pain is very significant, as we discussed in the case, to the point that when he took ibuprofen alone, it didn't do anything for him. And when he took morphine for his pain, cancer pain, he did see pain relief. He did have pain relief, which is good. We want him to be pain-free. We want him to have a good quality of life and so on. So the idea of discontinuing the morphine and going only on ibuprofen would be very not right at this point. Three, C, arrange for a trial of intrathecal opiates due to a dose limiting nausea. Most of the, at this point, he's not really a candidate because he's not on a relatively high dose of the opioids. Um, it's not reported very common in general if you switch to intrathecal, so this would be, this would not be the most appropriate answer at this point. And D, switch the patient to another opioid using equianalgesic table. So the correct answer would be D. At this point, because the nausea persisted beyond two weeks, it's, it's not, it didn't go away, the patient didn't develop tolerance, he's experiencing side effects, it may impact the fact that he may not take his morphine, so at this point what we would, should really consider is switching him to something else, such as oxycodone or hydromorphone or whatever you know, had worked for him in the past, his insurance, availability, and so on, using the equianalgesic dose, that would be the best answer for this patient. The second case we have here, a 48-year-old man with metastatic lung cancer on the palliative care service. He currently lives alone but has a family visiting often. He reports that he's often unable to engage in visits with his family because of somnolence. He notes a desire and motivation to spend time with his loved ones. So this is a patient that's probably telling his caregiver and the caregiver is telling the social workers he's complain complaining about the fact that I'm taking these drugs, but on the same time, it's causing me to be someone, it's causing me to be sedated, so I'm not as interactive with my family, I'm not as interactive and enjoying their company. Although his pain is well controlled, which is important to note, his energy level is negatively impacting his quality of life. He's found that if he takes lower doses of the opioids, his somnolence lessens, however, the pain becomes intolerable. What is the next best intervention at this point? So this is a patient who has been in opioids, we tried, so this is an opiate-induced somnolence. So the first strategy, if you can, as we discussed in the presentation, is to try to lower the dose if possible. But in this specific case, when we tried to lower the dose, the patient's pain become, became intolerable, which we do not want. We want to make sure, because we're going to have suboptimal pain relief. So we do not want this to happen. We want to make sure that our patient is pain-free, they are comfortable, they're engaging, and they have a good quality of life. So what is the next best intervention at this point? Would it be, what would you do? Would it be A, methylphenidate, B, paroxetine, C, reduction of opiate dose, or D, modafinil? So option number A, methylphenidate. As I mentioned in the literature, there are a lot of data supporting the use of methylphenidate. Um, a relatively those five to 10 milligrams would work very beneficial for these patients, would help with the opiate-induced sedation that you see. Uh, you just have to counsel the patients about the side effects of the methylphenidate. Or would it be B, paroxetine? There is no role for, currently no role for SSRIs, uh, selective serotonin antidepressants, and the management of opiate-induced sedation or somnolence in general. So B would be incorrect. C, reduction of the opiate dose. 
that would be inappropriate because when the patient tried to do that, his pain became intolerable. So at this point, this would not be a good option for this patient. Or D, modafinil. Uh, modafinil is another option that, is, as I mentioned, it takes, uh, takes longer time for it to work. It also associated with some cognitive side effects, like hallucinations and so on. So it might not be the best option for this patient. So in this case, the best answer would be methylphenidate, a relatively low dose, as, as much as 5 milligrams or 10 milligrams, once a day in the morning that would help with the opiate-induced somnolence that this patient is, exper is experiencing. So now we have some time for uh, Q&A questions. Okay, so the first question that we have here, uh, how do you manage uh, QT prolongation intervals in patients who are on methadone therapy? So for patients who are in methadone therapy and they develop QT prolongation, the first thing that you want to do is you want to think about where it, what is the QT number that you see. So patients below 420, you're not going to necessarily do something about it, right? You're going to leave the drug as it is. But for patients who their QT is between 450 and 500, these are the patients that you have to think about um, risk and benefit. In the sense, you're going to screen their profile to see if there are any other drugs on board that may interact with the methadone or may prolong the QT as well. So are they on any antipsychotics like Haldol? Are there any antidepressants, tricyclic antidepressants like imitriptyline or disipramine or imipramine? Are they taking uh, on the certain, for example, as I mentioned, could also cause QT prolongation? Or they have any history of cardiac disease in their family or whatnot? So between 450 to 500 is really forces physicians to think at the clinical pictures and to stratify the risk to think about if my patient should benefit from the methadone or not. You just keep a close eye on them. You're not necessarily need, you don't necessarily need to stop the drug, but you keep a close eye on these patients. But for patients where the QT is above 500, these are the patients that you really should stop the methadone. These are the patients that you have to consider switching off the methadone to something else, or drugs that doesn't cause methadone QT prolongations, and you have to educate the patient about this and engage them in, the, in that decision. Okay, we have a question, another question here. How do you counsel patients who claim they are allergic to an opiate due to severe nausea? That's a good question. So educating the patients as a pharmacist when you're doing discharge counseling or even in the community is to be able to explain to them the difference between an allergic reaction and the difference between side effects. A side effect doesn't cause, um, doesn't require necessarily an intervention in the sense that um, if you have a patient that's taking morphine, and they have hypersensitivity that requires that in interventions they have to be hospitalized and so on to manage that uh, to manage the allergic reaction. But for a side effects, it depends on the relatively uh, of the side effects. If the side effects, for example, nausea with morphine, counsel the patients and tell them that this is a side effect that could potentially happen with the morphine. Usually, it will go away within three to seven days. If it goes beyond the seven days, then this is when you really have to think about other drugs when we have to think about introducing drugs to manage their nausea if the morphine is managing their pain. So explaining the difference between an allergic reaction and a side effect to the patient in a simple language could really help them understand that not all opioids have the same effects, not all opioids work the same way, not all opioids result in the same side effects that you can see with one, it may not happen with the other one, and so on. 
we have another question here. Would you recommend opiate dose reduction when rotating opiates for opiate-induced hyperalgesia? So the question again is, would you recommend opiate dose reduction when rotating opiates for opiate-induced hyperalgesia? Yes, I would recommend that um, when you are rotating a patient who develops opiate-induced hyperalgesia, I would recommend dose reductions. The idea is to really try to uh, take them off from that opiate and place them on another opiate. So I would do those reduction. As I mentioned in the presentations, you can taper them down, or if you're switching them to something else, you should consider cross tolerance as well. So if they're on hydromorphone, and for example, you're going to morphine, you have to think, are you going to do 25% cross tolerance reduction, or 20%, or 30%, or so on. But I would definitely consider it. I have another question here. Is there any role for steroids for management of nausea induced by morphine? There are currently no role for um, the management of uh, for the role of using dexamethasone for the management of nausea induced by morphine. Um, most of the time, when we use dexamethasone or any steroids for the management of nausea, we use them in patients who are getting chemotherapy or patients who are getting radiation therapy and complaining of nausea, but there's currently no role for the use of steroid therapy for the management of nausea induced by opioids. We have time here for another question. Can you give naloxone to reverse the opiate-induced neurotoxicities? Um, so when we talk about opiate-induced neurotoxicities, such as somnolence or sedation or so on, no, you wouldn't give naloxone because naloxone has no role in reversing um, these toxicities that you see with the opioids. What you really should think about when you have patients who develop neurotoxicities is to think about dose reductions or to think about opioid rotations or to think about introducing maybe perhaps a psychostimulant if they are a candidate for the management of the neurotoxicities that you see. So that's all the time that we have for questions today. Thank you so much for participating. Um, if you have any more questions, please feel free to email me. My email is e like Edward, a like Apple, h like Harry, m like Mary, e like Edward, d like David at mjhs.org. Once again, it's e-a-h-m-e-d at mjhs.org. Thank you so much for your participations. And please um, remember, just I want to remind you of our next webinar, Assessment and Management of Anxiety and Depression. An advanced illness by Dr. Alessandra Strada on March 12 at 12:30, and to make sure that you complete your webinar evaluations to help us improve our planning for future session. Thank you.